tell you, that is great news, isn't it? No matter what we go through, no matter what we experience, we have a Savior who keeps us safe spiritually in his hands. Nothing happens outside of his purpose for our lives. As we go to prayer, let me just urge you to pray for um, Pastor Scott and Dory, um, their uh, son and his wife Tiffany lost their baby this past week um, at 27 weeks, uh, Sadie. So if you will pray for them, the funeral is Monday and they're away at that funeral. So uh, Scott and Dory, if you guys are watching, uh, Greg and Tiffany, love you, praying for you. Let's pray. So encouraging, Lord, to know that life in this world, while hard, difficult, and sometimes painful, is such a blessing because we are held in the powerful grip of a powerful God. Thank you so much, Lord, for loving us and being invested in our lives, for working in us and through us to accomplish your purpose. We pray this morning as we gather for worship that your word would instruct our hearts, give us understanding. Pray for Greg and Tiffany, Scott and Dory, that you would minister grace to them in this time of need, that you would encourage their hearts about a big God who does great things. And who is never taken by surprise. So be lifted up today in our lives in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. While you're getting settled, I just want to welcome those who were on the, uh, the Mexico mission team, the dental team that went down uh, to Mexico this past week. If you were part of that team, would you just stand just so that we can see you? Some of them may not even be here. There's a couple there, a couple there, a couple there. There you are. So uh, thank you guys for ministering and look forward to uh, hearing how God used you down there. I know it was a great encouragement to the Warrens and their ministry um, in Sinaloa. So it's a blessing to have you back all in one piece or however many pieces went down there. Well, we're back in Daniel chapter 9 this morning, so you're welcome to turn there if you have a Bible with you. In fact, I would encourage that. If you're wondering why we are taking our time with the prophecy that's given in verses 24 through 27, I think this is the third uh, message just out of these verses. The reason is because this is an essential blueprint for understanding Bible prophecy. I want you to understand it. You see, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, is the one place in the Bible where we are actually given the biblical timeline of future events. In these verses, God gave to Daniel the schedule for what happens after the Babylonian captivity until the end of the age. So it's a very significant passage. We'll be in there again today, and then we'll be in Daniel 9, maybe one or two other times in these verses. I'm not going to have you stand because you just sat down, but if you would follow along as I read Daniel 9, 24 through 27. This is Gabriel speaking, and he is delivering God's revelation about the future to 
Daniel and Gabriel says this. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, so far, we have only made our way through verse 24 of these verses, where we considered, first, the setting of the prophecy. Daniel knows that the 70-year captivity in Babylon is nearly over. And so he has been confessing Israel's sin, and he's been praying for God to restore his people And as soon as Daniel started praying, we learn that God sent the angel Gabriel to appear to Daniel, to assure him that his prayer had been heard and to reveal what will happen for Israel in the future. Gabriel told Daniel that 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. So Gabriel said that the time frame of this prophecy covers a period of 70 weeks. Now in English, the word week refers to a seven-day period, and it only refers to a seven-day period. However, in Hebrew, the word for week just means seven. It can represent a week of seven hours or seven days or a week of seven years. And in this case, the 70 weeks are 70 weeks of years. So the setting for this prophecy covers 490 years, not 490 days. Second, we looked at the subject of the prophecy. Gabriel said that these 70 weeks of years, notice, are decreed about your people and your holy city. And since Daniel's people were the Jews and Daniel's city was Jerusalem, the subject of the prophecy is not the Gentile world and it's not even the church. It is Israel. Third, we looked at the objectives of the prophecy. Look again at verse 24. Gabriel said that there are six objectives that will be fulfilled at the end of this prophecy. He said, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to what? To finish the transgression, 
to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So while the, the basis for the fulfillment of these six objectives is what Jesus accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago, the full realization of these objectives awaits Jesus' second coming in the future. So these objectives go way beyond Israel's restoration after they are released from Babylonian captivity. They look forward to the full and final restoration of Israel after the 70th week ends. This leads us today to begin looking at the actual prophecy itself in verses 25 to 27. In these verses, we fourthly see the substance of the prophecy where we will finally begin to get into the details of the prophecy itself. Now, as Gabriel lays out the details of this prophecy, what he does is to group what is going to happen into specific periods of time. And what's so exciting about the timing as well as the events which occur in this prophecy is that they are so specific and precise. So let's look at the specific divisions of time in the prophecy. The first period of time includes seven weeks comprised of 49 years. Verse 25, Gabriel says this. Know therefore and understand. By the way, a lot of people think that this is ambiguous and that we shouldn't spend a lot of time on it because, well, you know, it's, it's a prophecy and, and who can know really know and understand prophecy. But what did Gabriel say? Know and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. Now, before we start looking at this, you need to understand that in ancient Hebrew, there was no punctuation. Accents were later added to the Hebrew, which influenced the punctuation choices that were made by English Bible translators. Most of the time, this punctuation is incredibly helpful. I'm grateful for it. However, unfortunately, in verse 25, at least in the English Standard Version that I'm preaching from, it is not helpful. Rather than adding clarity, what it does is to create confusion. Literally, this is how it should read, and this is how it reads in the, in pretty much reads in the um, New American Standard Bible or the New King James or King James Bible. Here's how it should read. Know therefore and understand that there should be a colon there. From the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks and, not then, 62 weeks. So they're linked together. And then there's a period and a new sentence begins that tells us what the restoring and building of Jerusalem entails. It shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Now that's a really, as far as punctuation goes, that's a really good understanding of the Hebrew. 
Now, this first period of seven weeks is said to begin with a specific event that marks the start of the 70 weeks decreed for Israel. It begins, notice, with the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, the particular word that goes out to restore Jerusalem is very specific. At the end of this verse, it says that it authorizes the squares and the moat in Jerusalem to be built again. The Hebrew word translated squares refers to the public spaces that were inside the gates of the city. Think of of large courtyards. So the squares referred to what is on the inside of the walls of the city. But what does the word moat refer to? Well, if you've ever been with us to Israel, you know that there is no moat with water around the city. That's how we think of moats, right? They're trenches filled with water. Not only is there no moat around Jerusalem now, but there's never been a moat around Jerusalem. Well, the Hebrew word that's translated moat refers to something that is literally cut or dug. So it's describing here a a trench. And what's fascinating about the layout of old Jerusalem is that there are actually deep valleys or trenches that are around the city. There's the Kidron Valley, there's the Hinnom Valley, and there's the Tyropean Valley. These valleys actually surround Jerusalem. Now, the walls that surrounded the old Jerusalem were destroyed by the Babylonians. Remember that? Nebuchadnezzar swept in and and besieged the city. Well, they destroyed the walls. So if you think about walls, where did those large stones that made up the walls fall? Well, they fell into the valleys or into the trenches, right? So to rebuild the trench or the moat, those stones had to be removed. They sort of had to be remasoned and then they had to be reused in order to build the wall that stood next to the trench. So the moat that Gabriel said would be rebuilt refers to really what protected the city. And if you think about it, you've got this deep valley and then next to this valley you have a large wall. So an invading army would have a really tough time getting into the city. Now as Daniel receives this prophecy, Israel has been in Babylon for nearly 69 years. Jerusalem at this point was still in ruins and its temple had been destroyed and it had been stripped bare by Nebuchadnezzar. Now God reveals to Daniel that an official word to build Jerusalem will one day go out. Now the year that Gabriel appeared to Daniel and gave him this prophecy was just before 538 B.C. But the word to build Jerusalem and its walls wasn't given until 93 years later in 444 B.C. And once that word went out, the 70 weeks of years for Israel began. Now shortly after this prophecy was given to Daniel in the year 5. 38 BC, King Cyrus of Persia issued a decree for the Jews to be released from captivity 
in Babylon and to go back and build the temple. And you can read about that in Ezra chapter 1. After this decree was made, 50,000 Jews returned to the land. And what they did is they began work rebuilding the temple. 36 years later, in 512 BC, a second decree was given that's recorded for us in Ezra 6. This decree authorized the funding of more materials to finish the temple. And then 45 years after that, in the year 457 BC, Ezra chapter 7 records a third decree that was made by King Artaxerxes that actually lavishly supplied for the temple. Now, each of these three decrees were made by Gentile kings who not only authorized the rebuilding of the temple, but who also generously provided for what was needed for the temple. However, as we look back in Scripture in Ezra, what we discover is not one of these decrees said anything about rebuilding the city of Jerusalem or its moat or its walls. So by 444 B.C., the temple had been completed. But the city of Jerusalem, with its walls and with its gates that provided protection from Israel's numerous enemies, was still in ruins. And it was then, in that year, 444 B.C., that the word to build Jerusalem that we read about in Daniel 9 finally went out. This word was given by King Artaxerxes of Persia. You see, the situation was that the king's cupbearer, who was a Jew named Nehemiah, he was distraught. Why? He was distraught because 93 years after Israel had been released from captivity, Jerusalem, the city, was still in ruins. And it had been in ruins since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city 164 years earlier. So while God's people were back in the land worshiping, Jerusalem was still unprotected. And so Nehemiah was burdened to do something about it. We're not going to read Nehemiah chapter 2, but you need to write that down, that reference, Nehemiah chapter 2, because we see that's when the word went out. It went out in the form of letters that King Artaxerxes gave to Nehemiah to give to officials that would provide for what was needed to build the walls of the city. Not the temple. The temple's built, but to build the walls. And he also tells us exactly when that decree was given. It was given in 444, actually in March of 444 B.C. And it was this event, according to Daniel 9.25, that marks the beginning of this time frame for the entire prophecy. Now, Gabriel says that the word to build would authorize the squares and moat to be built again in a troubled time. And if you're familiar at all with the book of Nehemiah, you know that that is a perfect description of what that time of building was like. There was all kinds of opposition that threatened the work, mainly opposition from Sanballat and from Tobias and from Gershom. Tobias was an Ammonite, Sanballat was a uh, Horonite, and Gershom was an Arab. They were enemies of God's people, and they were coming against the building 
of the walls. However, under Nehemiah's leadership, the men of Jerusalem worked relentlessly. They had their swords by their side and they worked nonstop and persevered. And the restoration of the walls took only 54 days. Amazing, amazing. Construction project, however, of the squares lasted and the gates lasted for 49 years. So Gabriel said that this first period of the prophecy begins with the word to build the city, the courts, and walls in Jerusalem. And this occurred 93 years later in 444 B.C., an important mark. This takes us to the second period of time in the prophecy. The first period includes Seven weeks comprised of 49 years. And the second period of time includes 62 weeks comprised of 434 years. Now, Gabriel, it's interesting here, doesn't say what is to occur during this second period. He only identifies the event that ends it. During this second period of 434 years, there was no word from God given. There was no prophet to give revelation. These years are often referred to as the silent years. And from chapters 2 and 7 and 8 of Daniel, we learn that during this time, the Gentile world empires of Greece, followed by Rome, are in power. And while God doesn't reveal what will happen to the Jews during these silent years, he does reveal what will happen that ends this period. Gabriel says that it ends with the arrival, notice, of an anointed one, a prince. Look at verse 25 again. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of anointed one and a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, better, and 62 weeks. So to whom does the anointed one that comes refer? Well, the phrase anointed one in Hebrew is Mashiach. It's this word that gives us the word Messiah. This is why the New American Standard and the New King James translate Mashiach as Messiah. And the ESV and the NIV translate it anointed one. Anointed one, Messiah, they mean the same thing. So if you're looking at the ESV and you see an anointed one, or you're looking at the New American Standard and you see it says Messiah, just know that they mean exactly the same thing. The Mashiach, Messiah, is the anointed one. Well, who is this? This is exciting. This is none other than the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact... The Greek equivalent of this Hebrew word, Mashiach, is Christos, or Christ. How many of you know that Christ wasn't Jesus' last name? It is his title, right? It means Messiah. Now, the anointed one is the one set apart and anointed by God to rule. That's why he's also called the prince. The anointed one, the prince. Prince here means ruler, it means king. So Gabriel here, this is so exciting. He's telling Daniel when this anointed one, when this Messiah will come and be recognized for who he is as the king. So when did this event that ends the second period occur? Was it at Jesus' birth? 
Well, Jesus was not recognized by the Jewish people as their Messiah King when he was born. Okay, was it at his baptism when the Holy Spirit descended and the Father said, this is my beloved Son, hear him? No, because while God the Father recognized Jesus for who he was, he was not recognized by the Jewish people as the Messiah at his baptism. So to what event in Jesus' life was Gabriel referring? There was only one event in Jesus' life when he was officially recognized as Messiah by the Jewish people. You know when that was? Sure you do. It was at his triumphal entry in Jerusalem when he rode into the city on the foal of a donkey. Listen to how the Apostle John identifies this event in John 12, verse 13. He says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Get this, even the king of Israel. You see, this event was a unified recognition of Jesus as the king anointed by God as Messiah. Referring to the same event, Matthew 21 verse 9 says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! To the son of David. That's a reference to the king who will sit on David's throne. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the question is why did this crowd of Jews come out all together and greet Jesus by announcing him as their king? Well, it's because they connected Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey to a very specific messianic prophecy that's given in Zechariah 9. Listen, Zechariah 9, 10, 11 says this. See if you can see the similarities. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteousness and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, when... Jesus rode into Jerusalem. This was the moment when Israel recognized Jesus as the messianic king who came to rule the nations from the throne of David. Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm, says this in verses 22 through 38. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Oh, Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. This is what the people were shouting. This is what they were expecting. They were announcing Jesus as the Messiah who would come to set up his kingdom and rule from sea to sea. 
But you know what's shocking about all this? Is that Israel's recognition of Jesus as the anointed Messiah Prince lasted only part of just one day. By the way, you know what Jesus did right after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem? Listen to what Luke 19, 41 through 44 says. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. What was the time of that visitation? It was the time that Gabriel told Daniel that from the time that the word went out to the Messiah Prince, sad thing is just five days from Jesus' triumphal entry, the religious leaders had him crucified. So Gabriel is telling Daniel that from the word to restore and build Jerusalem in 444 B.C. to that day in 33 A.D. when Jesus was recognized as Israel's Messiah, his triumphal entry, there would be seven weeks and 62 weeks or exactly 483 years. The Bible is precise. Now, if the religious leaders in Jesus' day would have considered Daniel 9, then they would have known that Jesus was the Messiah who was to come 483 years after the word went out from the book of Nehemiah to rebuild. But they didn't. This leads us to a period that isn't part of the 70 weeks of years, and that is an undisclosed period of time. In verse 26, we see the undisclosed period of time includes an unknown number of years. So between the completed restoration of Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah Prince, there's a period of 62 weeks. That's 434 years. And then when you add in the previous seven weeks of building, it becomes a total of 69 weeks. However, according to verse 24, how many weeks are decreed for Israel? How many weeks? How many weeks total? Good guess. 70 weeks, right? 70. Now, between the end of the 69th week and before the final 70th week begins, Daniel discloses, or Gabriel discloses to Daniel that three things are going to happen in this undisclosed period of time, and we have time to look at one of them today. Look at verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So three things are said to happen in this undisclosed period of time before the 70th week begins. The first thing that happens is that the Messiah will be cut off. The Messiah will be cut off. The first part of verse 26 says, 
And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. Gabriel says this is after the second period ends. It doesn't, recur, it doesn't occur within the first or even the second period. It occurs after. Now, what does it mean to be cut off? Well, it means to be separated. It means to be cut down or to kill or to be killed. This refers to Jesus' crucifixion in A.D. 33, where the Messiah that God sent was abandoned by his own people. The anointed one talked about in this verse, verse 26, is the anointed one that was heralded as the prince in the previous verse. But if Jesus was the Messiah, why was he cut off? Why was he executed like a common criminal? Well, from a human perspective, it was because he was despised and he was rejected of men. The religious leaders hated him. They wanted him dead. And his entire three-year ministry, they dogged him and tried to kill him. However, from God's perspective, verse 24 has already informed us why the Messiah was cut off. It was so that he could atone for iniquity. You see, God's purpose for Jesus being cut off was very significant. You see, as God, Jesus came into this world as the Lamb of God to take away sin. A lot of people think that Jesus' purpose for coming was just to do good, just to perform miracles. Do you know what Jesus' miracles were for? It wasn't just because he wanted to make sick people well. He did. He had compassion on the multitudes. But the reason for Jesus' miracles was to authenticate him as the Messiah that was prophesied from the Old Testament. Jesus came to die as the atoning sacrifice. You see, the wages of sin is death. And for iniquity to be forever atoned for, one who was without sin had to die. In Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. See, God was to forgive sin, but he couldn't just overlook sin. In order to blot out sin, in order to forgive sin, in order to not remember it against people, that sin had to be paid for. Referring to the coming Messiah, Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You see, when Jesus came into the world, he was pierced and crushed and chastised. And wounded for our transgressions. The transgressions of everyone who would ever believe on him. This includes people like you and me. But it also included all the Jews who will be saved when Jesus returns to reign. You see, when Jesus gave himself to be crucified, 
The Jews in his day didn't see him for who he truly was. And they didn't consider why he allowed himself to be crucified. However, 700 years before his death on the cross, Isaiah 53 verse 8 said, As for his generation, notice this, Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Who considered it? They didn't. They missed it. Isaiah 53, 12 says that he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgression, transgressors. So for after the first 69 weeks and before the 70th week, Gabriel says the Messiah will be cut off and then notice it says that he will have nothing. What does that mean? It simply means that when Jesus was crucified, he didn't establish his kingdom at that time. In fact, you go to Acts chapter 1 and the disciples, after Jesus' resurrection, were asking him questions. He was teaching about the kingdom of God. And, and they asked him, and they said, Lord, will you at this time fulfill or restore your kingdom? And Jesus said, it's not to know, for you to know the time. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be witnesses for me. See, it was not at the time of his crucifixion that Jesus established his kingdom. After he rose from the grave, 40 days later, he he ascended to the right hand of the Father. However, Scripture tells us that one day he will come again and he will establish his kingdom. Sadly, we have to end here today, but next week we're going to be back, or the next time that we're going to be back in Daniel We're going to look at two additional things that occurred during this undisclosed period of time between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week. And we're going to spend some time looking at the 70th week itself. So as we close, let me just um, kind of share a few things that really struck me this week, just spending time living here. I think the first thing that struck me was how that God is never in a hurry. God is never in a hurry. It's interesting that from the time when this prophecy was given to Daniel, Israel still had to wait 93 years for the event of the word to go out that we read about in Nehemiah. 93 years before the clock even started. And it would, for us, think about the perspective. It would be like considering the time that's elapsed or transpired since 1930 until today. And 1930 sounds like a long time ago. Imagine you're a Jew living in the time of Daniel. You've been given this prophecy. The word's going to go out. Well, you see that the temple's being built. Jerusalem is still in ruins, and there hasn't been a word that goes out to restore and build the walls, the courts, the squares. Not until 444. God is never in a hurry. He's not up in heaven twiddling his thumbs, wondering what he's going to do next. He has a plan. He has a purpose. I love that. He's never too late. He's never too early. He's always right on time. Listen, one of the things that you can take away is that God 
will accomplish his purpose. We just need to wait on him and his timing. Psalm 27, 14 says, wait on the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The second thing that struck me about this passage is that God doesn't have a plan B. He only has a plan A. You see, Jesus' crucifixion was no accident. God's plan from the beginning was to send his son so that he would die for sinners. I think sometimes as we read through that, we look at those events and they're so horrific surrounding the crucifixion. And we're going through, we're saying, no, we don't want that to happen. In fact, that's the exact reaction the disciples have. When Jesus is disclosing to them that he's going to be crucified, Peter says, no, Lord, may it never be. Do you know what Jesus' response to him was? Get behind me, Satan. You're not going to prevent me from going to the cross. So the time of when the crucifixion happened was exactly when God said it would happen. He was recognized as Messiah at the end of the 69th week. And then as that week ended after it, he was crucified. In fact, it's interesting. 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, Peter addressed the Jews in Jerusalem. And listen to what he declared to them in Acts 2, 22 and 23. He said, men of Israel, he's talking to Jews. Hear these words. He's talking to Jews in Jerusalem. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up, notice this, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Both were involved. God has no plan B. Only plan A. And if the Jews in Jesus' day would have understood Daniel 9, they would have known that Jesus was the Messiah that God had sent. Third thing that struck me is that God's word is not only accurate, it is precisely and specifically accurate. Only a God who determines the future can reveal what will happen in the future. You know what's encouraging is that what God revealed to Daniel about the first 69 weeks has happened exactly when and how God said it would happen. And what this means is that what God has to say about what happens after that will be exactly how and when God said it will happen. This is great news, by the way, for those of us who know Jesus. We know that our future with God is going to be a glorious future. Don't be afraid of dying. Life for you, believer, never ends. That's exciting. However, for those who continue to reject Jesus, their future won't be glorious. It will be literally hell. God's word is the means by which God gives faith to believe in him. Scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This is because the object of faith, Jesus Christ, is revealed in the word of God. 
So what are you going to do with the truth of God that you heard today that's been revealed? Are you going to reject it? Are you going to receive it? Back in Daniel chapter 9, God revealed that the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, was to come. And he came. And God revealed that he would be cut off. He would be crucified. And he was crucified. What do you do with that specificity of truth? You have to believe it. If you're not a believer, why not? I'll tell you why not. It's because you love darkness rather than light. Your deeds are evil and you don't want them brought to exposure under the light. Let go of that. Turn from that stuff and embrace the king the prince, the anointed one who came to give his life so that we could have life. Father, thank you for passages like this that are so precise and specific that reveal to us truth. It's so encouraging. So encouraging. And we know that there are people here who do not know you. And they have persisted to resist you, to rely on their good works. To take a chance that you're going to look at their motives and kind of weigh them in the balance and, and you'll accept them on the basis of their own righteousness. Help them to see today that without Jesus Christ, they're hopeless. There will be no peace for them without Jesus, the one who makes peace. So do your work. Encourage your hearts. Be glorified in our midst. Save sinners. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand. I think the group is going to lead us in another song.